0: You know this is a question i guess asked a lot almost every day somebody will ask me what my favorite porsche is or whatever and my answer is it's usually the last one i've driven because i'll drive a car and i think oh that's fantastic so that's always my favorite is the one i've just driven but if i had to choose one to use myself it would probably be a 997 turbo because it's a, it's an astonishing fast and usable car and it looks fantastic and i i do think the 997 was the last of the real Porsche 911s. So one of those in turbo form would, would be perfect for me. And possibly, and people would hate me for saying this, I'd probably get a Cabriolet because then I could drop the roof down and listen to the Beach Boys on a summer's day.
1: <laughs> Porsches are often referred to as bookend cars. You buy one at the first hint of disposable income coming your way and sell it when spouse. House and family come calling. Then a decade or two or three goes by. Just as you get a sense that life may be passing you by, you convince yourself that you've once again earned a Porsche, maybe even a red one. Now imagine a life where the Porsche obsession takes hold early in the usual way, but then you get to indulge that passion for a living. This is Philip Raby's world, and he is our guest on this episode of the Work Workshop. Phil Raby convincingly claims he never planned his life this way. Outwardly, it sure looks like he did. He studied photography at art college and quickly landed his first job at EOS, a photography magazine. With a growing reputation in the field, Raby then took the bold step of writing an unsolicited letter to the UK-based Porsche Quarterly, 911 and Porsche World. The publisher wrote back with the offer of a job and Raby helped build the magazine into a mature monthly publication with a growing readership. Phil then went on to co-found Total 911 magazine, which reflected his sense of what a high-end car magazine should look like. He eventually sold the magazine, but continued to edit it for a time as it entered the digital age. Helping friends buy and sell Porsches eventually turned into a full-time job of its own. That became Philip Raby Porsche, a boutique pre-owned Porsche dealership. Phil never abandoned his core passion, however, and still contributes a regular monthly column to GT Porsche magazine. Most recently, he has written a new book, Save Your Life, where he has captured his formula for what he calls work-leisure balance. We caught up with Phil at his home in Chichester. Phil, welcome to the Work Not Work Show. Thank you. It's great to have been invited. Given that much of your professional life has revolved around Porsches, and in particular the 911, let's start with the car. What is it about the 911 that has inspired such a fanatical following for well over 50 years?
0: I guess it's different for everybody but for me in particular it's the looks of the car it's an iconic shape that's evolved but hasn't really changed over over 50 years Um, i've heard it said that the porsche 911 and the volkswagen beetle are the only two cars that anybody can recognize from a distance and from the side so that's really exciting the fact you can have a car that's stayed essentially the same for such a long time Uh, and of course it's got the engine in the back which is almost unique for a sports car um, and for some people, that's a crazy idea putting the car that the engine behind the wheels. But it gives it a unique driving experience. The handling is unlike any other sports car. And the other thing about Porsches is they're very usable and practical. So many old cars such as old English sports cars, they look great, but they can be unreliable. Italian sports cars can be temperamental, but a Porsche, you can get in it in the morning and you know it's going to start and be and behave itself. They're very addictive cars too, they get under your skin. Once you've
1: had one, they stick with you. On a number of occasions in your blog, you seem to have compared Porsche's design philosophy with Apple's design philosophy. This is quite a commendation for both companies. If I have that right, can you expand on that notion a little bit? The both companies that strive for perfection, Apple and Porsche, and they go against the
0: grain, but they always strive for perfection and form follows function in both cases. There's no unnecessary decoration on a 911 or on an Apple product. And they're
1: both companies that have a very loyal following. What was your earliest memory and experience of the 911? And in particular, what was it that grabbed your attention?
0: Well, it was a long time ago now. I think I was probably about seven or eight, nine years old. And I saw a black car drive past. Now, looking back, I'm sure it would have been a 911 Turbo. Um, But there was something about it that registered in my mind. I knew, even then, that there was something special and
1: different about that car. My experience was along the same lines. I was given a ride in a mid-1970s 911 Targa owned by a family friend, Charlie Laszlo. I was hooked. But I wasn't able to buy one until my late 40s, about 30 years later. Your case is similar, I think, having bought your first Porsche around 2004. This was quite a while after you started writing about 911s for magazines. So how did that work out exactly, and wasn't that a little awkward from time to time? Not at
0: all, not at all. and journalists always write about cars that they don't own um, by the very nature of their job. Um, in fact, my first Porsche was a 924, which I was very proud of, even though, though it wasn't a particularly powerful car. But I've happy memories of it, even so.
1: The Porsche 924 was misbegone in a way, wasn't it? I think it started life as either a Volkswagen or an Audi.
0: Well, it was designed to be a Volkswagen. Porsche designed it for Volkswagen, and then Volkswagen decided to pull out of the deal. So Porsche didn't want to see it go into waste, so they bought what, what was left of the product and rebadged it. So it's got a lot of VW ID parts in it, but um, it's still a great car. In fact, we've got a couple of 924 turbos in stock at the moment, which are
1: fabulous machines. A number of years ago, Porsche had this great commercial where a bored kid in the classrooms brought a brand-new 911 driving by. He then goes to the dealership on his bicycle to check it out and there's this charming interaction with an understanding salesman and a great punchline, which I won't give away. However, it's the voiceover that really sells the car while acknowledging who actually buys them. It's a funny thing about a Porsche. There's the moment you know you want one. There's the moment you first own one. And for the truly afflicted, there's the decade or two that passes in between. Oh, that advert is great, isn't it? I love that. If nothing else, Porsche knows their customers. Can you describe the excitement at at buying your first 911 after, like, so many of us, decades of waiting? I must confess, though, my experience
0: of buying my first 911 was all a bit stressful. Um, It was a long journey to get it with my wife. And when we got it, she didn't like driving it at all. She couldn't understand why I would want an old car. Um, (laughs) And actually, it wasn't a very good car. I was a bit naive at the time. And I ended up having to get the engine in the gearbox rebuilt. Um, but I must admit, by the time I sold it, it was a good car. And I made a bit of money on it, which is always nice. Um, but my happier memories were by, by my second 911, which was the 964. Um, that was a car I actually went over to Germany to get just before Christmas. And I had to take a long train journey over to the um, east coast of England. And then that was followed by an even longer ferry crossing, over to Germany in a fourth 11 gale. Um, (laughs) Now, I I love being on the sea, but that's the only time in my life I almost felt seasick (laughs) because I thought, what am I going to do on this ferry for 24 hours? And they had a Harry Potter film in the cinema. So I was sitting watching Harry Potter with this boat bouncing up and down, people vomiting all around me. (laughs) But it was worth it. I picked up this lovely um, forest green 964 from a lovely guy in Germany Came back the following day on the ferry, drove it home, just in time for Christmas. Um, I wrote quite a few magazine articles about that car. And I like to think that I helped sow the seed for 964s becoming the popular
1: Porsches that they are now. My first experience of Porsche ownership was something similar. It was an 86 Carrera found in a garage. It was originally a Japanese delivery, and apparently they never got them out of second gear over there because the synchros were shot, and it leaked a lot of oil. I guess we all live and learn with that first Porsche. You certainly do, yes. Our guest on this episode is Phil Raby, popular and highly regarded automotive writer based in Chichester, England. He has contributed to a number of Porsche magazines over the years, written several Porsche-related books and currently writes for GT Porsche Magazine in the UK. Phil, the various projects in which you have become involved in later life have a very art-centric feel about them. In addition to an early interest in cars, did you have an early interest in art, design and writing that would foreshadow your later career? I guess I did. Yes. Um, looking back on it. My father
0: was a very keen and very talented oil painter and I used to be fascinated just watching him do his paintings in an evening. Um, it was great to spend time with him and also wonderful to see him create these beautiful pink paintings. Um, I must admit, I did try my own oil paintings when I was young. He helped me, but I wasn't that great in it, but I was always interested in art and design and painting and I still am today. Um, but what I always, always enjoyed doing from a very young age was taking photographs. I had this um, old camera of my dad's, which took um, 120 film. Um, I'm not that old, but it was an old camera. And we, you had the chance to take eight frames on a roll of film. So I had to t- think about what I was doing. And some pictures came out and some pictures didn't come out. So that was very enjoyable. Um, and as regards writing, looking back at my school days, I was always very good at English. But um, sadly, teachers and the careers advisors at school never actually picked up on that. So I never considered a career that was involved in writing.
1: A common thread with guests on this show is that they typically knew what they wanted to do from a very early age. But in your case, you started your career as a marine electronics engineer and did that for a couple of years first. How did that come about and what was it that made you think you eventually wanted to do something other than that?
0: Well, when I was at school, I never really knew what I wanted to do. Um, I thought about being an architect, but um, a careers advisor told me that my maths wasn't good enough, uh, which I've I've since found out is not the case at all. My maths would be perfectly good, but I don't mind. I also considered being a teacher, uh, but I messed up my A-levels a little bit. So I left school and I spotted a job uh, where they were asking for somebody to work on yachts and doing electronics. I studied electronics at school, and I love boats, so the two kind of were a good, good mix. Um, got the job. I spent my time climbing up yacht masts, um, crawling around under berths and things. It was good fun, but I did it for a couple of years, but I realized I ought to do something more. So I ended up going to
1: art college to study photography, of all things. That means you likely dedicated serious time and money to it. These days... Everybody with a smartphone thinks they're a photographer. What are your thoughts about that? And is there still something that separates somebody who can physically take a picture from a photographer, per se?
0: Well, I think it's great that anybody can take great photographs with a phone. And I love taking photos with my iPhone. And they're very capable devices. But that said, professional photographers can go one stage further. I often work with professional car photographers, and it's amazing what they can do. Um, stuff that you certainly couldn't do with an iPhone action shots and, and beautiful, beautifully lit shots at night or early morning. So there is still a a difference between your average guy with an iPhone and a true professional photographer.
1: There's a particular photo that I remember talking with you about back a number of years ago. I actually hope to use it in the publicity for this episode. And I remember thinking, how on earth did they get this picture?
0: I know. It is remarkable. I mean, often these pictures, they look like the car's going 150 miles an hour, but they're actually doing it at about five miles an hour.
1: Maybe that was the secret. This picture I'm thinking about was blurred in all the right places and crisp in all the right places. And it looks like the car is going, like you say, 150 miles an hour.
0: It just reminded me of a story once. I, I was doing a photo shoot with a photographer and I was in the driver's seat of the car and he was over my shoulder and again, it was one of these low-speed shots. And the, the finished photograph was beautifully blurred. Um, but what we didn't notice was the fact the speedometer wasn't moving. Um, <laughs> right. And when this, magazine, when this photograph was published in a magazine, somebody did point this one out to us. That, that the speedometer
1: was registering zero. Correct. Oh, my goodness. It, it sort of breaks the spell, doesn't it? It does a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> what was it about magazines that made you think you wanted to make a career out of producing them? Well,
0: again, there was no big game plan here. But when I was a kid, I I, I do remember making a magazine with a mate of mine. um, And in those days, it was with a typewriter and carbon paper. Carbon paper.
1: Boy, that that brings brings back memories. Holy (laughs) smoke.
0: (laughs) Yeah. And uh, I think we then photocopied um, the the pages that we'd done. But looking back, I always enjoyed buying and reading magazines. Um, I was always buying either photography magazines or car magazines. But when I was younger, I never dreamt about doing it as a career.
1: Why do you think that was? Did you have expectations put on you that perhaps that wasn't a proper way of making a living? That's a good question. I mean, my parents
0: never put any restrictions on what, what I could do. But no, it, it just didn't occur to me. And again, the careers teachers at school were never that imaginative. Um, nobody would have suggested anything as exotic as a a career in publishing. In
1: 1991, you landed at EOS, a photography magazine. Can you describe your feelings at finally being able to work in a field aligned with your life's interests? It was really exciting.
0: I had no idea of how magazines were put together. So it was a a steep learning curve, but it was a lovely company to work for, a small company, and, and I worked with a great team of people. And I learned as I went along. And I found... I was good at writing. I was good at conveying ideas and, and explaining things to people. So that was wonderful. And, of course, I was writing about photography, which was something I knew about and enjoyed. Uh, and that was back in the early days of Macintoshes, um, which, of course, revolutionized magazine publishing. Uh, we used a program called PageMaker, which um, has evolved into today's InDesign. Yeah,
1: I, I remember, so yeah, I remember it maybe. well. Yeah, yeah.
0: yeah, I'm sure if we used it today, it would seem very primitive. But back then, it was, it was wonderful.
1: You managed to get that job without a resume that would convince your future employee you were actually able to do it?
0: Well, I do remember I had to write an article um, about uh, photography techniques. So I did that and submitted it. Uh, went up, had an interview, got on well with the people. And um, they seemed to like me and I liked them. And I got the job. Did Did luck play a role in that? I think luck plays a lot in anything in life, doesn't it?
1: Yeah. Was it partially due to simply being in the right place at the right time?
0: Of course, yes. Yeah, I was the right person to do it at that time. So yeah, it it was an element of luck, and I guess I was also,
1: um, I, I, I could do what was required. Right. You've described working on a magazine as having relentless monthly deadlines. Does that get easier over time, or does it get harder?
0: I don't remember ever saying that, but I'm sure I did. Um, <laughs> no, it doesn't, it doesn't get easier, um, and nor does it get harder. But it's not that difficult. You just get into the flow of it. Um, I think in anything in life, it's good to have deadlines. Um, if you've got a deadline to focus on, then you'll just get on and do it. Um, and any, any, well, most jobs have got a, are mundane to a degree, aren't they? So it's got to be better than a lot of jobs that people have, such as working on a factory
1: production line. It seems to me that a deadline implies that you never really get enough time to finish up something the way you might like. Is that, in fact, the case?
0: Well, it's, it's a bit of a rubbish word, deadline, when you think about it. It's, mm. it's quite a negative sounding word. Mm. Um, but if you didn't have a deadline, would you do a job any better? Or would, you, would it just drag on and on and on? Um, so I think it focuses the mind. Um, so you do need to have some sort of deadline. But the key is, is to make sure it's a deadline. It's not the. it's not. When you start a job, I used to work with a a guy in publishing who would end up working all night to get hit his deadlines at the end of the month. But if you plan your time properly throughout the month, you shouldn't have any rush at the end of it. And the work suffers if you do that? Well, it worked for this guy, but it wouldn't work for me. I, I like my sleep. So I'd rather make sure I've got a month to produce a magazine. So I would spread out that work throughout the month. So there's no last minute panic.
1: In 1997, you wrote a letter on paper to Clive Housem, then publisher of the British magazine 911 and Porsche World. You met with him, and before long, you were writing for his magazine. Can you tell us about that period, and who exactly sold who on that opportunity?
0: Okay, well, that was the days when I was working on the photography magazines, and I thought, wouldn't it be great to work in car magazines? Um, and then back then, 9-11 and Porsche World was a, a fairly new publication, published four times a year. Uh, and I used to seek it out from the newsagents. There were no websites back then, so you'd have to actually physically go to the newsagent and find the magazine. And I would buy that magazine, and I'd devour it from cover to cover. It was wonderful. Uh, it was really exciting to read a magazine all about Porsches. Um, so I thought, well, look, I'll, I'll drop this guy a line. no. This was before the days that email were email was commonplace. So I wrote a letter to Clive offering my services and he wrote back on another piece of paper and suggested we meet up. So we did meet up and we got on well, and he gave me a couple of articles to write for nine 11 and Porsche world magazine, which was fabulous. And then later on, he asked me to launch and edit a new magazine for him, uh, an MG magazine called MG
1: world. Before we leave this period, I just want to make sure I understand correctly and that listeners draw the right conclusion from your experience at 9-11 and Porsche World. If you had waited for the phone to ring, you would never have gotten that job, right? Of course.
0: That's really important. Um, In fact, my son, who's very into fitness, he put a note up in the garage, which he uses as a gym, um, and it says, don't wish for it, work for it. And I think that's a very good philosophy in life. If you want something, you've got to make an
1: effort. Right. Nine Publishing Limited, which eventually published Total 911, was a partnership between yourself, Rob Mugglestone, and John Frankus. How is it that you knew each other, and what made you feel you wanted to start a magazine together?
0: Well, we were were all Porsche 964 owners at the time, and we got to know each other through an online forum, the Renlist Porsche Forum, um, which is an American forum. But for some reason, at the time, a lot of the 964 owners on this forum were based in the U.K., So Rob, John and I used to chat about cars Uh, and then John, sorry, Rob got in touch with me asking if I'd like to discuss a new project with him. Um, So we met up and they were smart guys with good business backgrounds and we came up with the idea of Total 911 because I realized that most Porsche people I spoke to were passionate about the 911 over all the other models of Porsche.
1: Did you have a clear vision for what you wanted the magazine to be like?
0: Yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, of course, there's, there's no other magazine just about the Porsche 911. So it was exciting to be able to plan a magazine that would just focus on that one car, a car with 50 years of history behind it. There's plenty to talk about. Um, and the magazine had to reflect the car. So we, we, we planned high quality
1: paper and design and very in-depth and also informative articles. This was a few years ago, and these coffee table magazines, as you call them, were fairly new at the time. Did you see yourselves as leaders in the area when you started the magazine? Yeah, I guess. In a way, we were. there were other magazines out there um,
0: which had a similar look and feel. But certainly from a Porsche point of view, it was quite exciting to do
1: something that
0: looked lavish and um, upmarket.
1: It seems like at least some elements from 911 and Porsche World for example, lavish photography and lots of white space, found their way into total 911. Yes, yeah, so well, I guess any
0: car magazine has to has to have certain elements in it, so there's going to be some overlap. But interestingly, 911 Porsche World has gone away from that look now. They've got a much more grassroots feel to the magazine. With, it's not as um, lavish. There isn't as much white space. Uh, the as they used to be. They're trying to cram more stuff in there, which is great. There's nothing wrong with that, but it's a very different approach to what we were doing with Total 911.
1: 11 I was at my favorite magazine store recently, and I noticed a new Porsche publication from Australia called Duck and Whale. Have you come across an issue of that yet?
0: I've heard of it, but I've never seen it. It's it, a great name for a magazine.
1: Isn't it, though? It really catches your attention on the shelf. Yes. But boy, is that like the original issues of Total 9-11. Very centered on the art Beautiful paper quality, large format pages, wickedly expensive, though. Easily twice the price of any other car magazine in the store. But a very interesting magazine, though, and seemingly worth the price. So what's old is new again, right? They've gone back to these very simple ideas, and it's really attractive. It was really the, um, you know, it, it was an attention grabber. So you were publisher and editor of Total 9-11 from its launch in 2005 until 2008 when it was sold to Imagine, a magazine conglomerate. Can you tell us about how the magazine evolved over that period?
0: Yeah, I was actually publishing editor back then, um, and Rob Mugglestone was publisher. Uh, But we worked very closely together. We we had a lot of fun during the time we, we ran the magazine, and we built up a great team of contributors who worked with us. And that's key to any magazine. You have to have good people, good writers and good photographers and good designers working with you. Um, it was hard work, but definitely worth doing. Uh, the magazine quickly um, gained a good name for itself and also a very loyal band, band of readers, both in the UK and around the world. It was almost like a family feel. Uh, you know, People would write to us about the magazine and we got to know people uh, and people would contribute articles to us
1: and make suggestions. So it was good fun. You mentioned family feel. That seemed to extend to your readers as well. For example, I can remember back at that time, I used to write to the magazine from time to time, and I can say this. Without exception, I got a prompt and helpful reply. Boy, that sure made me a loyal reader. That seems to get missed these days a lot. You take the time to write, and you rarely seem to hear anything back.
0: Oh, that's good to know. Thank you. And it is so important, whatever you're doing, is, if somebody makes an effort to write to you, it's a reply. And it amazes me how many people don't do that. I I read recently that um, car dealers, only 20% of emails to car dealers get, get a reply.
1: It is such a clear indicator of the difference between somebody who is passively interested in your product or service and those who have an active interest in it. It just surprises me that more people don't pick up on that. So for those of us who don't know, what are the respective roles of editor and publisher, and is it a good idea to be both at the same time? Okay, well, an editor looks
0: after the day-to-day production of the magazine. He decides what's, what goes in it and actually puts the magazine together every month with the help of his contributors and a designer. The publisher, on the other hand, is more involved with the business side of the the publication. Actually, the getting the thing produced and getting on the, on the magazine stands and, and selling it. Um, now I shared that role with Rob, uh, and it was good to be involved in both, but I guess, uh, from a practical point of view, it's, it's sensible to have a separation. So one person can concentrate on making a great magazine and the other person,
1: um, can concentrate on selling that great magazine. What is the role of the advertisers over the course of the production cycle? Do you spend time thinking about what they would want and perhaps moulding the publication to reflect their interests in some way?
0: Well, it it does vary from magazine to magazine. Now, I was always very keen not to let the editorial side of the magazine be influenced by advertising um, because I think a magazine has to have editorial independence and freedom. Um, but that said, of course, um, if an advertiser had a good interest in product or a great car, we'd be happy to feature them in the magazine. But we wouldn't be, um, for want of a better word, blackmailed by an advertiser into putting in copy that we, that we didn't want. Uh, and you do see that in some magazines. I mean, some magazines, it's, it's a blatant advert for a product. Uh, and I, I would never want that.
1: Has that gotten worse recently? It just seems that as time goes by, advertisers look for more subtle, clever, or even devious ways of cutting through all of that marketplace noise.
0: Well, I think with good quality magazines, probably not. Um, But you do see it maybe in some cheaper magazines, Um, and certainly in local newspapers. I don't know if you still got local newspapers in America. They're they're kind of clinging on for dear life in in the UK. Well, same here. Yeah. Yeah. And and you do see some um, blatant advertorial copy. Right. It's
1: even got a name, advertorial. I haven't heard that before. Yes. yes, a whole name, but yes. (laughs) As a result of all of this experience and for the person who figures that being an automotive writer must be the best job in the world, is that true? If not, what can you tell us that might convince us otherwise? What are the drawbacks?
0: Well, if you're really into your cars and you enjoy writing and you enjoy driving cars, then yes, it would be the best job in the world for you. Um, And it is good fun. You spend a lot of time out there, um, driving. You spend a lot of time with photographers driving cars up and down, up and down while the photographer gets the shot that he wants. Um, and you get get to drive cars around corners probably slightly faster than you ought to because the photographer wants to get that certain shot. <laughs> so it's a lot of fun. Um, now I'll be honest with you. There's a lot of motor and journalists out there who don't make a lot of money. Um, but then there are some that do. There's three guys who run a little TV show called The Grand Tour. Right. Um, I think they're doing quite well out of it as motoring journalists. Right. But they're probably the exception. Right. Um, but I wouldn't, I'd never put anybody off. If it's your dream, then follow it and do it. Um, and the other thing, and I suspect career teachers these days would probably say that magazines and newspapers are a dying breed. So why would you want to be a journalist? But there's a huge amount of stuff online written that's been written online. And somebody has to write all this stuff. So I think there's a good future for good writers.
1: One of the things I like about the little bit of writing I do is that it's like I'm creating this brand new little piece of property which I can then own and market whatever way I choose. It's like I've truly created something from nothing, pulled it from the ether in a manner of speaking. It's really satisfying. Yeah, that's a nice way of looking at it. If you weren't busy enough already, in roughly this same period you started Philip Raby Porsche. Can you tell us about what that is exactly also was the timing a coincidence or something more conscious when you looked at the road ahead no pun intended in the magazine business
0: yeah well i think like everything in my life nothing was really planned <laughs> um but people started asking me to inspect cars that were for sale um so i would go and look at a Porsche and, and check it out and make sure it was as described before somebody bought it Uh, and then people would ask me to source cars for them. So I'd go and somebody, somebody says, look, I want a red nine, six, four. So I go and find that car for them and help them to buy it. Uh, and also people would then come to me and say, look, Phil, can you sell my car for me? Because people don't want to be bothered selling cars themselves. So at first it was a very casual arrangement. Um, but then I've built it up into a small used Porsche dealership, uh, which is what I do at the moment. Um, it's only a small business, but we pride ourselves on really good customer service and also good value for money. I'm not a salesman at all, so you won't get a hard sell from me and we haven't got fancy premises.
1: Um, but you know, I do what I do and we enjoy it. As I mentioned a moment ago, you sold Total 9-11 in 2008. What was the reason you felt you wanted to sell the magazine and what were your feelings about that at the time?
0: Okay, well, it was getting hard for a small independent publisher to survive in the UK UK news trade, which is a bit of a monopoly, and we were being told that if we didn't spend X amount of money a month on promotions, um, we'd be delisted. So it needed a bigger company with a bit more clout to enable it to grow. So at the time, it seemed the right way forward to be with a company that had 20 or 30 magazines, and they could then go to the news trade and call the shops
1: themselves rather than than the other way around. Sorry, for those of us who are not familiar with the term delisted, what what exactly does that mean in this context?
0: Well, certainly in the UK, you're listed as a newsstand magazine by the company that do the distribution, which is actually one company, really. Um, And that means that you get a place on the newsstand. Now, years ago, news agents would just put magazines on the newsstand. But what they've realized is actually... Those newsstands are a good advertising spot for magazines. You walk into a newsagent, you see a magazine on the shelf, and it's being promoted to you. So what the news, newsstand distributor does now, they will say, right, we want you to spend £10,000 a month on a promoted spot, which means that you get a better position on the newsstand. Um, but if you don't spend that money on the, on the better position, they don't
1: want you in there at all. Oh. So they're almost blackmailing you a little bit. Well, that explains a lot. The magazines I look for on the shelf, they seem to come and go at random. I didn't realize that was part of the dynamic with which they're wrestling. In effect, they're being asked to pay for a spot on the shelf. It is very much like that. And you can certainly
0: understand it from their point of view. I mean, it is, it's is—it's prime property, really, isn't it?
1: Yeah, interesting. So what you're saying is that you're not only having to worry about the advertisers, but you also have to worry about the distributor as well, and they have a monopoly absolutely
0: yes okay. uh, and actually the the internet's quite good in a way because you can persuade people to subscribe to the magazine um and that was always a good income from subscriptions ah, but okay, you've got to get out to people in the first place, and the newsstand is the best way to do that so the subscription model gets you around all that absolutely, yeah, you're selling straight to the to the end user, which is fantastic, and of course, you've got them tied in for a year. And hopefully they'll resubscribe for the following year. Right, so, and you know
1: exactly what your sales are going to be from subscribers. Right, and and it's cash up front. Absolutely, yes. Yeah, you stayed on at Total Nine Eleven until two thousand and eleven. I'm assuming that was partly a contractual thing, but were there other goals that you still wanted to see achieved, even if you were no longer the owner? In particular, the launch of the digital edition in two thousand and ten was that a factor? I understand that at the time, a digital edition was pretty innovative for a high-end magazine.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I wanted to stay with my baby, and there was an opportunity to see it grow within a big company with the resources that would really help it move on to the next level. And it was exciting to do that, to see the magazine evolve and become even better with a bigger team behind it. Um, The digital edition, it was never... um, a big thing for me, but it did seem like the way to go. Um, at that that was the time when the iPad was coming out, and everyone was buying iPads, and I thought maybe it is the future of magazines that you would read it on your iPad. Looking back, I, I don't think it it's ever really worked. Um, I don't know about you, but I, I never read magazines on my iPad anymore. I don't. Um, I th- no, you're right. I think I the problem is magazines are sort of A4 or bigger in size. Whereas an iPad is smaller Mm -hmm. and all people do, they take the print magazine and they, they squeeze it into an iPad size, which is too small. And also, why would you want to make a magazine that looks like it's paper on a screen? Why not just have some sort of nice website? There's some fantastic websites out there and it's much easier to navigate a website than it is a fake magazine online.
1: Perhaps it's our demographic, but I completely agree with you. I still really enjoy the tactile experience of a magazine. I enjoy the smell. I enjoy the feel of really high-quality paper. And I enjoy the fact there's a beginning and a middle and an end.
0: Well, it's interesting to say about our demographic, because if you're, say, younger people who didn't grow up with magazines, why would they then want to have something that looks like a magazine on screen? Because they've grown up with websites. Um, so I, I think there's a, it's, it's not comfortable, the whole fit between computers and iPads and magazines.
1: And who would have predicted the resurgence of vinyl records? If there's a future for them, there has got to be a future for magazines, right?
0: You know, I was in our local Tesco superstore. It's a UK supermarket. Right, sure. And they had a whole rack of vinyl records. I was astonished. In Tesco? Uh-huh. Yeah, in Tesco. And they're not cheap. <laughs> they're about tw- tw- over 20 pounds, these records. <laughs> the, the new Rolling Stones album on vinyl. On vinyl. I was absolutely amazed. I, I didn't realize yeah. it was so mainstream to be in Tesco's.
1: Right. Well, and... Uh, I guess I guess nobody's left one in the sun yet. Remember that? <laughs> That's very true, yes. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. And it was completely unplayable after that. Yes. Let's revisit for a moment the elephant in the room. I think we have sort of answered this, at least from a personal perspective, but setting aside our feelings about the subject, is there a future for printed magazines or is it just a matter of time before they're gone entirely?
0: Well, this is something I talk about quite a lot with people in this country. Um... No, you probably know Pete Stout. He used to be editor of Excellence Magazine in the States. Uh, Right, yes, I do. He's launching a magazine, I think it's called Triple Zero. It is just that. It's a very upmarket, beautifully produced magazine by all accounts. Um, It also sounds very expensive, especially if you have a ship to the UK. Right. Um, So I think magazines will become like coffee table books, something that you're going to cherish and collect. Uh, And we're seeing this already in in, in the arts world. There's, There's very beautiful magazines coming out and it sounds like pete's new magazine is going to be very similar
1: triple zero i don't i don't get the title
0: um i guess it's something to do with the three numbers the porsche's have like 911 924 ah okay 000. okay i think that's i think that's what it's called i think that's how you pronounce it triple zero
1: right so it's going to be in that same that same vein as duck and whale by the sounds of it
0: yeah but with a probably a slightly
1: cooler name unless it's called 000 <laughs> At the end of two thousand and eleven, almost exactly five years ago to the day from today, you left Total Nine Eleven to concentrate fully on Philip Raby Porsche. So, rough numbers, it was the first time in about twenty years that you hadn't faced a monthly publication deadline. How did that feel?
0: Wow, I'd never really thought about it like that, but yes, you're right. Um, It was a fairly gradual process. So, but it is nice not to have those deadlines anymore. Having said that, I, as we were saying earlier, I, I do like a deadline. So i always impose my own deadlines on things to motivate myself. Um, I'm a really big believer in to-do lists, uh, or in fact, as I call them, must-do lists. Mm-hmm. So I have a list of what I must do in a day. Mm-hmm. If I didn't have that, I probably wouldn't get anything done. Do you
1: feel your level of output has gone up or down as a result of the absence of deadlines? Well, it's
0: probably gone down because I'm not writing as much um for magazines that i was doing i I do a monthly column for gt porsche magazine right
1: i'm going to ask about that in a second sure
0: and one or two articles for them as well but i'm not churning out the the amount of copy that i was doing then but i'm of course i'm doing other things i'm doing the the car sales so but again i use deadlines to keep myself on track with everything i do
1: the philip raby porsche website has an extensive blog section which you seem to write more or less single-handedly more recently, you have written a regular column for GT Porsche magazine. I take it that these satisfied an obvious need you have to write.
0: Yeah, Well, when I when I left Total I-11, the, the then editor of GT Porsche got in touch, asking me to write a column. So I jumped at the opportunity because I, I realized I would miss writing if I didn't do any at all. So it's good to do that. And there's no bad feeling between the magazine. Everybody knows each other in, in this business. Um, and the blog on my website... I. I was originally told I needed a blog for SEO purposes, right. but I enjoy doing it, and um, I'm quite pleased to say the blog seems to get more readers than Total 911 did. <laughs> <laughs> the world in which we live, eh? Absolutely.
1: You have routinely and reliably churned out a lot of material over the years. What is your approach to writing, and do you have a defined process that you follow?
0: Well, it goes back to deadlines. I I need to have a deadline. I think everyone does. Um, it just focuses the mind. Uh, and you just got to get on with it. I think there's a lot of I mean, People talk about writer's block and all this sort of thing. I remember reading about some famous author and somebody asked him um, Do you write when you're inspired and his reply was uh, Yes, but thankfully I'll get inspired at nine o'clock every morning <laughs> And I think that's the key you've got to just make an effort and sit down and do it uh, it's, it's very easy to get distracted Um, And also, certainly in the sort of stuff I write, research is important. I've I've got an office full of Porsche books here. So I'll I'll sit down and sort of dig out books and and research things. But once I get started, I I, I write fairly quickly. Uh, I also think it's important to avoid distractions. So I'll I'll put my phone on to silent. I'll I'll mute all my email notifications. And I'll I'll use a full screen page on the the computer too. Do you find the modern writing tools that are available helpful computers and such oh absolutely i mean i couldn't sit down and, and write with a fountain pen and a piece of paper <laughs> um, or even a uh, typewriter i mean just, well yeah, yeah. probably not no i, I mean I, I do remember typewriters that well i didn't work with a typewriter but when, when i was a kid There was a typewriter in the house i used to use for my homework and, and you had to use um tipex to cross out any, any mistakes so right. that i mean that'd be that'd be awful wouldn't it going back to that right um, but, but I, I think technology is wonderful i mean I, i've got a macbook I, I write with but then i can go to my ipad and the article will be there mm-hmm. and it'll also be on my iphone so i can i can switch from one thing to another depending on where i am i could be on a train using my ipad or you know sitting in the living room i suddenly have an idea i can go on my phone and and add something to an article and of course i can collaborate with collaborate with other people so
1: technology is f- fantastic i recall reading about an author recently i can't remember the name. But her thing was to write her books out longhand in pencil. I can't imagine how difficult that must be. But she felt it was essential in terms of her method. I suppose it was necessary to fully form a thought before putting pen, or rather pencil, to paper. Well, you think she could at least use a pen. You would think so. <laughs> but apparently the pencil was just part of the approach that she took. So maybe it was that she could erase, but perhaps that's opening up a whole new can of worms.
0: Yes. I mean, maybe it's a little bit like um, photographers in the olden days would have a sheet of 10-8 film and they had to get the photograph right the first time. So maybe if you do write with a pen and paper, it, it focuses the mind to to get it
1: right first time. But I couldn't do it. No, I couldn't. A couple of years ago, one of the great characters in the Porsche community, Magnus Walker, was featured in a short film called Urban Outlaw. Interestingly, it was the trailer for that film, for me best captures the whole zeitgeist function
0: it's a smell it's a sound you hear your heart pumping you feel the blood pulsing through your veins you sense the sweat
1: dripping down and by the time you're done you're probably exhausted. You have produced some promotional videos for Philip Raby Porsche with your son, Johnny. I would describe them as a cross between a coffee table magazine and the urban outlaw video that I just mentioned. They are quite cinematic and have high production values, including the use of drones and such. Can you describe the process you and Johnny used to create these? And where do you see this going in the future?
0: Well, it's very kind of you to say so. Uh, Johnny's 15 now, and he wants
1: to be a filmmaker when he gets older. So he's obviously got a very bright future ahead of him.
0: I hope so, yes. <laughs> well, he, he has, he has. Mm-hmm. So it's a great opportunity for him to be able to, you know, work with some great cars and, and, and make some lovely films that I can then use to publicize the cars and my company. Um, it's a lot of fun, too. We, we go out, I drive the cars, and he does the filming. Um, and I just leave it to him. I, I, I just say, look, here's the car, let's do something. And he's got a drone, so he'll fly the drone overhead as I'm driving along, or he'll he'll have the camera mounted behind me, or he'll be on the side of the road somewhere. So it's good fun to do that with him. Uh, And we've got plans to do one or two longer films featuring Porsches, too. Uh, The problem is, he's still at school, of course, so it's just finding the time to do it.
1: By all accounts, he's going to pursue this as a profession.
0: Well, this is what we're talking about at the moment. Um, We're we're trying to work out what the next stage in his education is going to be. Um, And... I think that's the, the the way forward for him, and uh, he'll do very well for himself.
1: Just referring to the guests we have had on the show to this point, a common thread, which they all share, is that they started young and then they didn't take their eye off the ball afterwards. For example, our previous guest, Bob Thirsk, knew he wanted to be an astronaut in grade three and never varied from that. For all of our guests, starting young seems to be the key to both success and happiness.
0: Well, I hope so. I mean, I, I didn't know what I wanted to do when I was 15. And sometimes I think I still don't. Um, but also <laughs> what, what I say to people, you, you don't have to have one career. Um, I, think it's so, I think it's almost essential that you do different things in your life. Uh, and a lot of people I know and I talk to have followed that route. They, they do one career and then for whatever reason, they change to something else. So, you know, I say to Johnny, you know, you can be a filmmaker, but you may decide in 10, 20 years time to do something totally different. So, who knows?
1: Once again, our guest on this episode of the Work Not Work Show is Phil Raby, founder of Total 911 Magazine current regular contributor to GT Porsche magazine, author of a number of Porsche-related books, and proprietor of Philip Raby Porsche, a boutique dealer of pre-owned cars. So, Phil, this new book called Save Your Life, can you tell us about this project?
0: Yeah, well, that kind of follows on from what I was saying. Um, It makes me quite sad when I see and hear about people in jobs that they don't enjoy, and they're just waiting for retirement. I remember somebody saying to me, oh, I hate my job, but if I stick at it for 30 years, I'll get a really good pension. I thought, well, that's crazy. I that can't be right. You only get one life. So why would you want to defer living for 30 years? Um, so what the save your life book and blog do, they encourage you to do just that. Um, and it, it includes sort of small ways to free up time. Cause a lot of people I think waste time. So it, I talk about ways that you can be more efficient in your day and, and, and sort of do the stuff that you have to do, which then frees up time to do the stuff that you want to do. Um, but then the book goes on, goes one stage further and says, look, you know, let's, I mean, people talk about work-life balance and I've never understood that. I mean, work, I can understand, but what's life? You know, you you, you, you get life and you can't switch on and off. So it should have been work-leisure balance. Um, I don't know. So what the book describes is that you, sh- you should try to work towards Merge in the the two things so your your life is you do what you enjoy and it also earns you money and you make a living out of it um so that's what save your life is all about
1: sounds fascinating and it also sounds like excellent advice where can people find it yeah the book is out now it's um, available on amazon and there's a blog that goes with it i understand that you're married with two kids and you live in chichester on england's south coast where we talked with you for this episode Can you tell us a little bit about your life outside your professional pursuits and what interests you have?
0: Yeah, I've got two children. It's Johnny. We've talked about He's Mm -hmm. 15. And Louisa, who's nearly 20, she's off at university. And it's lovely. We we live here. We've got the the south coast. We've got the sea on one side of us, which is fantastic because I enjoy sailing. And on the other side, we've got the, the South Downs hills, which is also great because I also enjoy cycling um so uh, you know often we'll go out and we think why would anybody live anywhere else it's wonderful here
1: (laughs) (laughs) so where do you go from here
0: phil that's a good question um i mean as you probably gained by now i've never had a a big game plan for my life um i don't want the constraints of a large company so the porsche sales business will probably remain similar to as it is um although i've got one two little plans for next year just to sort of expand things a bit and do some more marketing. Um, the, the Save Your Life book is, is going to be a big thing. I want to do a lot of work on promoting that uh, and maybe do a follow-up to that book too. Uh, and I'll see what else comes up. So I think it's good to have a life that evolves and is always changing. And it's nice to have a few surprises coming up. You know, again, I wouldn't want to be sitting here
1: waiting for retirement. Promoting the book. That brings up a subject we haven't really touched on yet. None of the things that you do sell themselves. You have to actively go out and sell them. Yes, and I mean, you described modern- you described yourself as not being a salesman, but that's sort of part of the job, though, isn't it? <laughs> yeah.
0: um, I'm not a car salesman. Um, I don't. I don't mean, I'm, I'm, I'm not a salesman. I think I'm quite good at marketing. And, and again, technology is your friend here because social media is fantastic. Uh, certainly for the Porsche business, you know, we've got a lot of followers on Facebook and Twitter, um, and it works. I've sold cars on. Facebook and Twitter. So it's exciting to have that. I mean, a few years ago, um, if you wrote a book, you'd have to you know, get it into bookshops and, and go down that traditional route. But these days, you can, you can do it all online. It's, it's fantastic. I can never understand people that scorn technology and don't want it. Um, you know, people say that they're slaves to the phones. But I think my iPhone actually frees me because it allows me to be anywhere and, and continue my work. I could be sitting on the beach and the phone rings and a customer um, rings up about a car and I can
1: be, be there within half an hour to meet them. Exactly. As it relates to your professional interests, what interview question have you never been asked, would like to have been asked, and what would your answer be?
0: I've never been asked what I would be if I wasn't doing what I do now. Um, I think the, probably, the answer would probably be an architect.
1: What about that profession in particular do you find interesting?
0: Well, as I said earlier, um, when I was at school, I had ideas about becoming an architect, and I was, I was put off that. And, and while I've no regrets about the way my life's gone, um, architecture does fascinate me. Um, I've always wanted to build my own house, but my wife's always said no, because we can't, um, we, we can't even choose on, we can't decide on door handles in our own house, never mind <laughs> designing a complete house from scratch. I know of what um, you speak, yes. <laughs> <laughs> So yeah, I think an architect would have been quite cool.
1: If you had to distill your professional career down to three or four keywords, what would they be?
0: Um, I guess it would be unplanned,
1: evolving, unconventional, and, and good fun. Fun, right. So if I'm to understand you correctly, you really believe in blurring the line between work and leisure. Or to put it another way, you don't believe in working on a factory assembly line and hating every minute of it just so you can go home to finally do something you enjoy for a couple of hours.
0: Well, everyone's different. I mean, I've, I've met people who work in factories, and they love it. Mm-hmm. They really enjoy it. Mm-hmm. So you, I would never knock anybody for doing a job that I don't want to do. Right. But I think you, you need to enjoy it. I mean, don't work in a tire factory if you don't enjoy it. Right. Um, but yeah, I mean, you, you've got to have fun in life, you only get one chance at it. And if you enjoy what you're doing, I think you do a better job.
1: Once again, in this episode, my guest has been Phil Raby, automotive writer, author of a number of books, and proprietor of a boutique-pre-owned Porsche dealership. Phil, in our final segment in this episode, I'm assuming there are a fair number of listeners tuned in because they wanted to hear the Porsche magazine guy talk about Porsches in as much detail as possible. So let's oblige them with a few more 9-11 questions to wrap things up. First, which one do you own today?
0: Well, I have to admit, I don't own a 911 at the moment. I've, I've actually got a KN, uh, which is a fantastic car. Um, I know some people knock them, but they're, they're great. Um, there's plenty of room for sailing equipment and bicycles. And you press the sports button and it, it drives like a sports car. It's really, really good. Um, and of course, I've got Porsches at work I can enjoy, including a lovely and very rare 924 Turbo, which I mentioned earlier. And I love that car. And um, there's always 911s there as well. The 911
1: guy doesn't currently own a 911.
0: No, sorry. (laughs) But there there will be other 911s around. They're always coming and going.
1: Well, I have to say that Porsche's marketing was brilliant in this regard. They knew that in the vast majority of cases, for each garage that had a 911 in it, there was a high likelihood there was another car. And they just wanted to be the ones to sell you that other car. Exactly. I
0: mean, if you only needed one car that does everything, a Cayenne ticks all the boxes.
1: Right. If you had to choose between the sight of a 911 or the sound of it, which would it be and why?
0: I think for me it's got to be the sight. Um, it's going back to that iconic shape, um, especially the side profile. There's nothing else like it. It's a beautiful shape. It's even a nice car to wash. Uh, and I'm a hopeless car washer, but you, you, you get your, your, your mitts. Uh, you know, you, it's, it's just a very nice, satisfying car to wash and polish.
1: What's the single best song to listen to while driving a 911? Oh,
0: it depends what sort of mood I'm in, really. It probably makes me sound very old, this, but maybe something by the Beach Boys. Yikes. And it would have to be on a summer's day with the roof down, driving fast.
1: Well, that comes as, well, I was going to say shock, but that's really not the right word. I, I was, however, making an educated guess that it was going to be Edge Hill by Groove Armada. The reason I say that is that there was an article in one of your magazines that posed that exact question, and that was one of the answers. I remember listening to that for the first time and thinking, what on earth were they thinking? <laughs> but after listening to it for a couple of times, I began to realize it was the perfect Porsche song, particularly on a rainy night. You
0: know, i have forgotten all about that.
1: What's the single best road to drive one on? There's, you know, people think the UK is full
0: of traffic, but there are so many good roads if you go looking for them. You go go off the the main roads, there's some fantastic roads in this country. Um, And it's hard to sort of pin one down, but there's a road local to us, it's called the B2141. And it runs from where I live near Chichester up to Petersfield. And it's got wide sweeping bends, fantastic scenery, Not a lot of traffic on it. Um, The only downside, you could get the odd deer crossing the road, but that is a nice road. It's only a few miles long, uh, but it's one of those trips. If I'm going out in that direction, I always make an effort to go that way rather than on the main road. Uh, And that's one of many, many
1: great roads in the UK. What about in Europe? Is there a particular road that you would say that's the road you really want to drive? Well, I've, I've driven
0: quite a few roads here and there. I mean, to be honest, when I'm in Europe, I tend to drive... On, on the big auto routes because you're trying to get somewhere quickly. Um, but the, the Stelvio pass, which is a bit of a cliche, but that is a great road. Um, the only problem with the Stelvio pass when I was there was it was full of cyclists. Ah. Um, now I enjoy cycling, but I was amazed. Um, these guys cycling up this mountain I I drove up got out of the top and I, had, I ran up a little hill to take a photograph. And within 30 seconds I was out, I was out of breath because the air is quite thin. Right. So um, these guys cycling up there, hats off to them.
1: Cost no object? What is the 911 you dream of owning?
0: You know, this is a question I guess asked a lot. Almost every day, somebody will ask me what my favorite Porsche is or whatever. And my answer is, it's usually the last one I've driven. Because I'll drive a car and I think, oh, that's fantastic. So that's always my favorite, is the one I've just driven. But if I had to choose one to use myself, it would probably be a 997 Turbo because it's it's an astonishing fast and usable car and it looks fantastic and i i do think the 997 was the, the last of the real porsche 911s so one of those in turbo form would would be perfect for me and possibly and people would hate me for saying this i'd probably get a cabriolet because then i could drop the roof down and listen to the beach boys on a summer's day there you go <laughs> See, but the, the new ones are amazing There's there's no doubt about it but yeah, I mean, they do drive like a big luxury car. And also, they are big. If you put a 991 next to your 86 car, there's a massive difference in size. Well, of yeah. course, all cars have got bigger,
1: haven't they, over uh, the years? Absolutely. People want more luxury and more safety equipment. <laughs> absolutely. I, I returned yeah. to a, a street that I grew up on just recently, and I was re- I was surprised at how narrow the roads appear to be. And I think it's because all of the cars have gotten so big.
0: Yeah, well, I heard something in the UK recently that... Um, There's a lot of insurance claims because car parks aren't big enough for modern cars. Right. So people are sort of hitting bumpers and hitting doors and then,
1: um, owners are claiming on the insurance. Right. (laughs) If you could ask Ferdinand Ferry or Bootsy Porsche, just one question, what would it be?
0: Okay. Well, it's often said that Ferdinand Porsche was crossed with his son Ferry for making the first three, five, six mid engine. Um, The story goes that Ferdinand who designed the Volkswagen Beetle was a little bit tied up with um, sort of post-war problems and Ferry thought he'd design a sports car and he came up with this fantastic two-seater mid-engine sports car and Ferdinand came along and he wanted a rear-engine car because, like the Beetle of course, because his argument was a rear-engine car gave better packaging. There's more room for, for the occupants and for luggage so he insisted that the 356 engine was moved to the back uh, and of course the first production Porsche was the rear engine 356 which went on to be the rear engine 911 that we know and love today so it would be great to go back and ask Ferry what he actually thought of this did he want his little sports car to remain a mid-engine car and of course if he had done the 911 that followed would quite probably be mid-engine and we, we would never have
1: had the, the rear engine Porsche's at all.
0: We're now in the realm
1: of complete speculation, but what do you think his answer would have been?
0: I'd like to think he'd have um, stuck by his guns and said, look, I I really did want this to be a mid-engine car. Mm -hmm. Um, But I'll tell you what though, I think if if it had been a mid-engine car, I don't think the 911 would have survived to this day. Um, It wouldn't have had that same sort of legendary quality about it, which the the rear engine has given it. It would have just been another sports car.
1: Well, certainly the older ones drive in a very peculiar way. You either love it or you hate it. It's that quirky handling that has inspired both love and hate in its owners over the years, particularly with the earlier cars.
0: It is. And once you've you've mastered it, or I don't think anyone really masters it, but once you understand it, it's fantastic. And it always puts a grin on your face.
1: The trailing throttle oversteer. You do that exactly one time, don't you? You either learn the hard lesson and never do it again, or you really get yourself into some trouble. Yes, I did cash (laughs) me out once. (laughs) (laughs) Me too. Are you aware there's another Phil Raby in Canada who's also a journalist? I am. It's bizarre, isn't it? And (laughs) I believe he's
0: also into cars and photography. Um, We have exchanged emails in the past, but I'm not in touch with him. There's another one of us in the UK too. He's a a film critic. And I think quite quite a well-respected film critic in his field. So it's obviously quite a common name. Do you find sometimes you take his calls? It only happened once, and that was a woman trying to contact me on Skype, who was, who was trying to get the,
1: the other Phil baby. Um, but once, once we worked out the confusion, I was able to point her in the right direction. Phil, in closing, I simply want to thank you for being so generous with your time today, and what an amazing discussion this has been. Are there any thoughts with which you would like to leave our audience? Keep in mind that they'll be there for and available for the next ten thousand years. Wow! No, no
0: pressure there, then. No. Oh. Right. <laughs> I think just um, follow your passion and enjoy life and and just make the most of every day. Whatever you do, and
1: have fun. That's great advice, Phil, and thank you again. On this episode... Of the Work Not Work show, you've been listening to Phil Raby, automotive writer, past co-founder, editor, and publisher of Total 911, a current contributor to GT Porsche magazine, and a proprietor of Phil Raby Porsche. If you like what you've heard, please rate us on iTunes. It really helps. We're also on Patreon, so if you would like to hear more great guests like Phil Raby, please consider becoming a patron of the show, which starts at as little as $1 per episode. Our website is worknotwork.show. And our series of podcasts can be found on Apple's iTunes, Dan Benjamin's Fireside, and now available on SoundCloud. We're also on Twitter, of course, WorkNotWork, Work, and all of your favorite social media platforms. Follow us on any of them to get news about upcoming guests. The show is written, produced, and hosted by me, Terrence C. Gannon, and is wholly owned by Interlog, Inc., of Calgary, Alberta, Canada. All rights are reserved. Thank you, Michelle, my lovely wife, for your continuing support and your truly infinite patience. Finally, thank you, our faithful audience, for supporting the Work Not Work show, the show about people who have turned their passion into their profession.